forge your inner armor. Welcome to the Inner Armor Podcast with Dr. Timothy Royer, where we explore ways to train our brains and bodies to become dynamically resilient so that we can all, from professional athletes to ordinary people, perform at our potential. Well, welcome back to the podcast. This is a very special time of year, not just because of Christmas and New Year's, but it's time for the major college bowl games and the NFL playoffs to begin. And today we're going to be talking about football, particularly the role of the quarterback and what it takes to fill that role. Today, Doc is going to talk about his long experience working with quarterbacks And we're going to have a very special guest, one of the top quarterbacks in the NFL, joining us later in this episode. Now, Doc, we can't all be NFL quarterbacks, obviously, but what can we learn from them and apply in our day-to-day lives? I think as we talk about that specific position, there's other applications for all of us that want to have some of these same cognitive skills. Many of us may not be able to throw the ball like a quarterback, but we sure want to be focused. We want to be resilient. And I would say of any sport, any particular position, this is probably the one I know the most about. Working with the different quarterbacks, currently 11 of the starting quarterbacks, so a third. I have looked at their brains. I've worked with uh, some of them personally in training, assessed. And it's very interesting to be able to each week flip through a red zone or whatever we're going to be watching the different games on and watch each of them respond differently. And to realize that the downstream behavior of throwing the ball under pressure, reacting, making decisions really does start with the upstream brain and how it works. These are real people and they become larger than life. But the question is, how did they get to larger in life? they're still a real person. They were still a second grader at one point in a classroom with a bunch of other second graders. And yet they got to this level throughout their life. And so what was the the secret sauce that got there? And that's what we do a lot of on our neuroanalytics is when we analyze an athlete, every organization is looking downstream at how they threw in college you know, what their training was, what kind of competition they went against, how they reacted under pressure. But the organizations that I've worked for that have been very successful with their quarterbacks look beyond that. They look behind the curtain. What is this person made of? How well can they learn the playbook? How well do they adapt? What are their learning styles, their memory functioning, uh, their processing speed? What are the sort of interesting inherent qualities of these individuals, this select group of 32? It's interesting when you're looking at these 32 players, we still have to remember they're not all in one box. They come at it at different, from different perspectives, different angles, different giftedness. But the commonality with the ones that really stay with it and become kind of that franchise quarterback, a lot of times, most of the time has some type of significant cognitive or intellectual strength to them. There are many great quarterbacks that are just sheer athletes, but at some point they hit a bump where it's hard to move further 
because they don't have that cerebral context to them. So maybe out of the shoot, they all might look the same, but I, what you see as a commonality, the ones, the longer they're in the league is this intellectual component. So most quarterbacks that are super successful are going to have a higher IQ. Now, with that being said, there's always a balance in IQ. Is It's not just the guy with the highest IQ wins because if he gets too high, it's almost as if the brain processes so much information that the physiology and the emotional side of the person can't manage that. And so there's kind of, you don't want to be so high in your IQ that you're overanalyzing every single thing, but you want to kind of be in this above average to high range. And that's typically the sweet spot that we're looking for. A subset of intellectual capacity that we see that's very important in a quarterback is visual processing speed, which would make sense, but it's not always measured correctly. So you need to be looking at a typically what we would say is we wouldn't even consider somebody that doesn't have a visual processing speed over a 110, which in standardized testing, 100 is average with a standard deviation of 15. So you have to be at least 110 for us to even look at your processing speed because the game is so fast. These guys that we're talking about that are super iconic are having visual processing speeds up in the standard scores of 130, 140, which is in the 99th percentile, super, super high. And it's interesting not to get out of the quarterback situation, but we did a study a while back of NBA athletes and what kept them in the league the longest. So we looked at 30 different athletes over a period of time, and we looked at all kinds of variables. The number one thing that kept them in the NBA for long past the normal three years or whatever the average is, was processing speed, visual processing speed. So they come in all shapes and sizes, different wingspans, different verticals. But if they could visually process, they would use that to compensate as they got older for maybe some lack of speed, lack of strength, drop in testosterone, those kind of things. Same thing happens with quarterbacks, this elite group. Okay, what about visual processing speed? Break that down a little bit for the listener. What does that in particular mean for all of us and for an NFL quarterback and why is it so important? Visual processing speed across almost every sport is essential. I mean, we don't have any blind quarterbacks in the NFL. Doesn't mean you can't throw a football if you're, if you're blind, but there's so much visual complexity. We have seen people like Patrick Mahomes last year when he hurt his ankle, his mobility decreased significantly, but yet he still played the position, right? There's different other types of physiological things that happen to an NFL quarterback and they can still perform. But if you don't have your eyes functioning well or functioning at all, you can't perform this task. So a lot of times when people think about vision, they just think of you can see or you, can, you can't see. But vision is on a continuum. And we have people that can process huge amounts of information in a short period of time and people who can only process a little bit of information in the same amount of time. And not only, process, not only take it in, but how accurate are they going to be with this. I've seen this in quarterbacks where we have people that are very fast visually, but their accuracy is off. It's low. And so they're the ones who are going to be more prone to throwing interceptions. I didn't see that guy there missing these very important things. 
where they might be quick and they might be fast, but you have to be accurate too. We also have auditory processing and those kind of things and our short-term memory and long-term memory, which is part of IQ. And some of these things are very important for being this particular job, a quarterback, and some aren't that important for being that particular job. And so what we do is we tease those out. But the one that always rises to the top is visual processing speed. And I would say that I see that across many, many, many arenas from the elementary student to the CEO, to the physician, to the NFL quarterback, that visual processing speed, especially in environment now, wow, think of how much we're processing visually. How much time have you looked at your phone today or your computer and you're taking these abstract shapes that we call letters and you're decoding those and turning those into words, which then create visual images that you then process. I mean, there's so much going on visually that we are overloaded many times. And so we have to make sure that in a quarterback that that base of visual processing speed is there. So we're looking at IQ, cognitive capacity. We're looking at visual processing speed and accuracy. Are there any other criteria that you look at for this position? Yeah, one of the things that we want to look at is how well they can recover. So you're going to take the amount of pressure on a system that these guys have been used to collegiately, and you're going to now amp that up four to five fold. And it's all going to be compressed in the season where you might have games that are only separated by four days, right? And so you have to be able to recover well. You have to be resilient, really. And that has to be solid, that resiliency. And so there's different ways to look at that. Uh, One of the main ways to look at that is looking at their EEG, which is the electrical current in the brain. You can't get any further upstream than actually looking at the brain and the electrical current, brain imaging. I can look, we have all these people that talk about and analyze downstream things, but when I'm all the way upstream looking at electrical current in the brain, I have a very concrete understanding of that person's ability to recover and manage stress. And so that's going to be closely tied to how well they're sleeping, how well they're using oxygen and energy. And the place we'll see this a lot when we do our sleep studies is in their deep sleep. And so deep sleep is kind of that point that our body recovers. And it's really the factory from which we make testosterone. And we will, we will look at this as well. Like how is their testosterone production? Because we know if their testosterone production or DHEA, which is a precursor to that, is lower than normal, that they're going to have a really hard time bouncing back. And we, we, can tri- we can go upstream from their low testosterone and see they're having a problem in their deep sleep cycle, which has to do with further upstream, the brainwave activities that manage deep sleep aren't functioning well. I know this sounds very complex, but it is a specific formula that lets us see your ability to recover and bounce back from what happened on Sunday is going to be totally dependent on how resilient your brain is. It's still for us somewhat theoretical, but I am seeing clinically that overall injury prevention and even response to concussion is impacted by some of these baseline numbers. If you have low resiliency, low recovery, 
poor deep sleep patterns, kind of sporadic testosterone production, you're more prone to when something happens to you, the whole system collapsing. You've mentioned sleep, you've mentioned visual processing training, you've mentioned cognitive training. What other kinds of things do they need to do to be successful over the long haul in the NFL? Yeah, I would, I mean, there's so many different things, but I want to talk about just two, two things that maybe we don't really think about. One is, I think there's very few times that you will see an iconic quarterback that doesn't have some type of iconic coach next to them. And a lot of times when people kind of look at a guy and say, well, he hasn't gotten uh, the Lombardi trophy. Uh, He hasn't been this many playoff games. I would say, well, there's more to this than just how good that quarterback is. There are coaches that also come in all shapes and sizes, right? And when I'm talking about intellectual capacity and achievement and what people are seeing on the field and their visual processing speed, I've tested over a dozen NFL coaches too. And it's, it's really interesting that you marry together, in a sense, this iconic quarterback. He also needs this companion that knows how to use his strengths and weaknesses. It could be an incredible coach put together with somebody who's high average and they become very successful. So I think that's externally one thing. But internally, I would say the unique thing is this ability to be very present for a quarterback is they cannot, you only have a finite amount of energy, all of us. And there is a significant demand on that energy for during every play. And your ability to perform at your highest level and what these really iconic QBs do is they are so present that they're not wasting any energy on the what-ifs. There's not even 10% on the what-ifs. That's not even, the future isn't where they're at. The what-abouts, I threw four picks this game, okay? The what-abouts, there's no wasted energy on the four picks. You know what? I would have wasted energy on the four picks, right? But the iconic guy's like, I don't, I'm moving on because I've got it. I got to sling this thing, right? And so there's no wasted energy there, 0% on the past, 0% on the future, and they are 100% present. They're so present, many times, they're not even paying attention to the crowd, the noise, the moment in the game. They're just doing their thing, right? And that's the difference. The guys who get in their head, and what about, what about, what if, what if, And that's not just for quarterbacks. I mean, that's life. The people who are the movers and shakers in this world, they are present when they're doing their craft. And that's why we are so impressed by them, is they're all in. They're not scrolling Instagram or doing this or that. They are like right there, right? And so, and that is a skill that we all should be challenged to be, be because it's something that we're definitely losing in our culture. And when you find an athlete that way, they stick out. They stick out in a positive way. 
Man, that guy's all in every moment, fully present. Now, we have a real special guest who's calling in today because we have the quarterback of the Minnesota Vikings, Kirk Cousins, entered the league in 2012, 10 years in the NFL, and we are so excited to have him on the podcast today. Welcome, Kirk. Oh, thanks for having me on, guys. It's an honor to be to be with you. Kirk, you have a pretty unique job. In fact, it's a job that only, what, at any given time, 32 people on this planet can do. And so what does it take to become capable and prepared for this kind of a role? It it is pretty unique. Yes. And I don't even know that when I was a fan of football growing up that I understood just what it does take for a pro quarterback to do his job at a high level. Now living it, it takes far more than I ever realized, but I'm living a dream and it's a real privilege to be in the position I'm in. And I'd like to do it for as long as my body and mind will allow me to. But it sure does take a whole lot. And Dr. Royer has been a big part of that journey for me, of helping me going back to my college days, better understand what it would take and how to maximize my abilities so that I could, in a very competitive environment, be able to excel. And my relationship with with Dr. Royer and what he's taught me has made a a very meaningful difference to help me reach the highest levels of competition in pro football. Wow. So this must have been what, what, 11, 12 years ago? Kurt, you're seeing this was 2011. This was the fall of 2011. Sure. Now we're in 2023. So sure. Yeah. It's been, it's been a good, good sample side now to be able to look back on and take stock of. What do you do to work on that resilience? I think that it's been unique, the ability to to play week after week, year after year. Now I've, I've been a starting quarterback for eight seasons. And I look back and there just haven't been many quarterbacks who have done that. And, and there's certainly good fortune. There's certainly people praying for me for protection. And, but I do think that the ability to understand that we, 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 there's such a thing as pushing yourself too hard and too fast. And there's, it's important to understand, to pace your system and to come down from that redlining feeling that you have as a starting quarterback. You can't live at that all the time. And I think when I met Dr. Breuer as a senior in college, I'd been living at that for several years as a starting quarterback of a major college university, college school. So for me, it was learning to, to get to that sympathetic state when you need it. But then to go to a parasympathetic state when you when you need that, and mm-hmm. and sort of learning to relax, learning to pace yourself, learning to breathe correctly, and to to really see that rest is just as important as the the moments of stress and the moments that you think are what are defining. And I think that ability to pace myself and to learn to have those ups and then to come back down in a healthy way to then go back up. I had never been taught, never learned. No one ever talks about that. You really just think you're just supposed to redline all the time and bring it all the time. And if you do that, that that leads to something called burnout that I think most of us are familiar with. So the fact that I can now look back after these 12 years and say that, has it been a stressful journey? Absolutely. Have there been challenges? Yes. But that burnout feeling, I'm 34 and I tell you, I feel better, healthier, more capable at 34 than I did at 24. Mm-hmm. And and with the approach I'm taking, I'd like to be able to say it's 44 that I feel better. And so that's where I'm working towards. And I think where Dr. Royer's experience, his counsel, his techniques have, have really made me really made a meaningful difference. <clears throat> yeah, Kurt, 
I go back to those first two years where we were just processing a lot of different things, mentally, stress-wise. Can you think of like any examples of things that have changed in kind of how you see things or respond to things that feeds into that resilience? Or maybe on the flip side was making the resilience harder early on. Sure. Well, I think it's it's uh, certainly in some of our sessions where we would just talk and I'd be able to kind of unload what I'm processing. You'd kind of help me better organize it and and put it in the right perspective. You would often say, whatever the challenge is in front of you that a part of you wants to avoid or would wish wasn't there or would love to complain about, whatever that is, let's acknowledge it for what it is. And you would often say, like, let's put it on the shelf and like identify it as such and not make it more than it is, but just understand it's, it's a entity. And then also you'd say, when you, when you call it what it is, you, you still have to go through with it. Like it's, you're just going to get back on the horse and you got to keep going. And I think that message of getting back on the horse and keep going, it was one that I think ties very directly with resiliency that doesn't have to be easy. People think that, well, yeah. if, if, if I'm resilient, it's because I want to run to the challenge. And many times you gave me permission that it's okay to not want to run to that challenge. That's okay. But you're going to run to the challenge. You're going to do it. And, and that's also okay that if you, if you have questions, you're, you may not feel all for it. It doesn't mean that, that you should walk away. And so that ability to kind of encourage me to lean in rather than lean out and to understand that those doubts or those fears are natural sort of gave me permission to feel okay with what I was processing. Yeah, I remember, We you, do you remember when we always used to talk about riding the elevator? Or, yes, or get, you had to get, get back on the elevator. Yeah, and we, we would use this example of like people that are scared of elevators. If they don't get on the elevator, they're going to use their, the steps, the stairs the rest of their life. And you had some particular things that were creating anxiety or stress. And we were like, man, we got to get on the elevator. We just got to ride the elevator, not avoid that experience. But when it comes, embrace it. Because the more we ride the elevator, the more it becomes normal, right? Yes. And uh, you remember those things and we, we'd kind of identified those. And it's so interesting to watch you like this last year, take on some of those challenges that, that in the earlier were maybe wanting to be avoided that you just like, they probably still create stress but you've mastered them. I mean, it, it is just crazy to watch you master the end of the game and uh-huh. think, wow, that started with just like those first couple trips up the elevator. Yeah, so down. Now, I think in earlier years, I didn't have the same command. And, uh, and I do think that when, when you are willing to just keep going back into the fire, you give yourself more at bats to just keep getting better, keep getting more confident. And, and give yourself the grace to fail time and time yeah. because that's going to happen. But when you do that, you look back and you say, man, the fact that I just kept getting back on the elevator is largely why I'm where I am. It was no secret. It was no formula. It was no one day. It was just a consistent approach of being willing to step back into something that maybe at times worried about or, or wondered, was it worth it? And when you just keep going back to the fire and keep stepping in, you look back after time and say, wow, look where we've gone. Yeah. Very cool. What are the things that you have to do to prepare to play again or to perform at your potential and to win? I mean, there must be this cycle, right, of execute, um, 
recover, perform? Well, for me, routine is a great comfort. So I love the Sunday to Sunday schedule and being able to stick to a routine where I know at 4 p.m. on a Friday what I'm going to be doing because I penciled it all in week to week and it just works like clockwork. So I think it's important after a game to come down from that. And so breathing, regulated breathing is a great way for me to come down and kind of tell my body, okay, you're no longer in fight or flight. You now need to relax, recover, go to sleep, get a good night of sleep, because that can be a challenge for me, win or lose after a game. I'm going to replay all the thoughts in my head in the game. And as a result, it's hard for my body to stay asleep or to get to sleep. And that's so important night after game to get that recovery. So teaching your body to come back down. And then Monday is a combination of body work, football review from the game, and then family time and really starting our preparation for the next opponent. Tuesday becomes my my off day. And so I truly take Tuesday off. I would guess that most NFL quarterbacks do not do that. I'm kind of unique in that aspect. I think that it's important for me to push really, really hard for six days and then to always have built in that 24-hour window where I rest. So that's a priority of mine that I've always had. And I think it's served me well over my career and I'll continue to do it. But Tuesday becomes that day. And then Wednesday, it really begins our work week and it's a long day. Thursday's also a long day. And that's where the, the, the beat of the preparation of, for our opponent goes in. But with that, I also make sure that morning, night, that there's important regulated breathing and, and my, my mattress will, will track my sleep and, and let me know what my HRV was as I slept. And so there's a lot of data I'm trying to gather throughout the week to see how my body is feeling and recovering. And then I can kind of use that data to know where I'm at and, and if I have what I need for the next game. Yeah. I, I mean, watching you do that and develop those routines, I mean, I would say one of the most difficult things for any pro athlete or somebody who starts to enter this arena that everybody's looking and monitoring them at all times or they're getting successful is you can get sucked into so many things so fast. And it's been very interesting to watch you, Kirk, actually become even more limited or choosy about how you're doing those things versus try to squeeze, squeeze, squeeze. And yeah. that's got to be a big factor in this it inspiration. It's tough to say no to some great opportunities. Yes. Like You have to say no to some good stuff to say yes to the best stuff. And just the other night, I was invited to sit courtside at an NBA basketball game, and it's like, I'd love to do that, but that would be saying no to my family and to spend time with my boys and to get a good night of sleep. And so I'm going to have to pass. And while it breaks my heart to say no to that, I'm also saying yes to what's most important. And so I've learned through the years that you're going to have to say no to stuff. I just didn't realize that when you're a NFL quarterback, the stuff you have to say no to is still some really good stuff. Yes, very fun stuff. I think with that one, you've, you've alluded to it a couple of times that we, we have to talk about our journey with sleep, our sleep, the sleep, yes. and your mindset about that. I, I, I know it's different today than it was a dozen years ago. Can you speak to that and it in its role in this whole thing, how sleep impacts it all? Well, in culture, there's this pervading thought that I think is is quieting, but all my years growing up, the messaging was that to be able to go on very little sleep is a badge of honor and a sign of strength. Mm. And the more you need sleep, that is a weakness. And what Dr. Royer taught me was that not only is that a, a bad way to look at life, 
but sleep is actually going to be one of your greatest assets to having mm-hmm. the football career you want to have. And if you can be a better sleeper than the competition, you will probably be a better football player and beat the competition. And if not in this week's game, certainly over the long haul. And I think that that would, I think, bring me to a question that I want to ask about this whole idea of being present or in the moment. How do you think that's changed for you? The ability to be present and in the moment versus maybe a dozen years ago. I've always played my best when I'm truly present. There's nothing that my mind is going through in the future that's, that's worrying about or applying onto the current moment. And then when you're not looking back at all and having anything in the past affect you, but to just truly be right where you are, it's amazing how simple that fact is, but also how difficult it is. Mm. And I think that's what Dr. Royer's communication with me has helped is to remind me to keep going to the present and nowhere else because it's almost like our natural default, certainly mine, is to go to anywhere but the present. <laughs> and yet, once again, my best football has always been played when I think part of the reason I had a great game was because I was just fully there. There was, there was, I wasn't worried about next week. I wasn't worried about flight home and, and what I happened to be processing. I wasn't thinking about anything outside of this game in this moment. And, uh, and many times not even thinking outside of that play or you're not thinking about, well, what if we don't get this third down and it goes to fourth down? Oh no. And just being right there on third down in the moment, it's hard to do, but it's also very simple. And when you can find that, it's a beautiful thing. Kirk, not all of us get to do our jobs in stadiums uh, surrounded by 100,000 people, but everybody has demands in their life. And so for our listeners, they walk into the, the stadiums, the arenas of their life, whatever that is, what advice maybe you can give to them to inspire them and encourage them to maximize their potential to be the best versions of themselves, especially using some of the things that Dr. Royer talks about? Well, I think division training and Dr. Royer can speak to some specific case cases, but I mean, people have no idea that their eyes are letting them down so much and makes it so hard on their brain. And until you were to be tested and objectively have a way to measure your performance and, and weigh it against thousands of people to see where you fall, it's kind of a sleeping giant or a hidden problem. And I think There are many people who, when they can realize, oh my goodness, the pressure that's been put on my brain as a result of my eyes failing to pull their their weight, it's a game changer when you can get that corrected. Life's hard enough. We don't need to be dragging extra anvils around with us physiologically with parts that we weren't even aware of letting us down. So Doc can speak more to that, but I think that it's, it's a simple way to make life easier on your brain is to give your eyes, taking in all this stimulus and all this information to give them every reason to perform at their best. Of course, like you do everything else, you jumped in with both feet. I think you got through the first phase of vision about three times faster than anybody else. But it actually, when we looked at the changes in your numbers, it was really changing how your brain was perceiving what was going on. In some sense, you were seeing more defensive players coming at you than actually were to some degree or the speed at which they're coming out because we were dealing with strength in the eyes 
to actually slow the game down, which is a, a fascinating thing. But can you kind of speak to why that you would come back and do the program over and over? What were you noticing? Well, I think it's important to check back in and make sure that everything's functioning. And inevitably, when you take a year off, two years off, that there may be things that are a little weaker. And it may not be everything. When you first get started, you feel like, okay, I got, I got to improve a lot of areas of vision. But as you improve things, and it might be one point that's a little more stubborn. And so you got to address that a little more often and try to keep things up at, at the high level. And for me, I often go see different health professionals and I say, You're, you might be used to seeing somebody who's got a really rough case. That's not me. I'm, I'm just at an area where it's a razor's edge. And so I'm trying to yes. find that 1%, 2%, but the, the, the need is still there. And so I still want the same expertise you're giving somebody who just wants to feel better in their basic activities of daily life. I still want that expertise. We just have to apply it to somebody who, yeah, in daily life, I feel okay. But in the razor's edge competition that I'm in, I need that 1% that give me. So in that case, my needs might be different, but they're also still the same in the sense that I'm applying the same principles to my life just as, as they would apply to anyone else. There's a speed component and then there's an accuracy component. And you're trying to find the balance between these two, which we want that for an elite athlete, but we also want that in life. Can you speak a little bit to the to that balance that we were looking for and kind of where you fell in the speed and accuracy and trying to find that that balance between those? Yes, we had to kind of figure that out because I was, I believe I was all accuracy. The speed was a little too slow. And you kind of chuckled and said, oh, that's probably personality. You want to do things right. And it's hard for you to just blow over something and go fast. You want it done right. And so he said, be okay with being a little bit less accurate to gain a little more speed. And, and so then you kind of learn how to better improve at the test. But certainly there's conversations that we've had that go well beyond just objective data on vision or objective data on breathing HRV to actually personality and how you view the world and the way you're wired. And I think that's the beautiful blend between the psychology part of your background, Doc, which is obviously a big part when you study the brain, yeah. Then also the biology, physiology side of what you do, where you say, I don't want to just have to talk about feelings all day, but it's, it's really both. It's, it's, you want to look at uh, the, the subjective, the feelings, the worldview, but then also the objective and the data and the science and use both to really customize a plan to, op to really optimize your health and, and who you are as a person. Yeah, to, br to bring in all those variables. And I think... That kind of balance between accuracy to the point that it can get obsessional or perfectionistic and then speed and productivity. Uh, that's not just something that an NFL quarterback struggles with because you could yeah. probably put different NFL quarterbacks into different buckets. You have yes. some that are very, very fast, but maybe not putting a lot of weight on being accurate, right? Or you have the ones that are very, very accurate, but it compromises speed. And your ability to find that balance and fine tune that, I think that's what everybody out there is kind of looking yes. for. You know what I'm saying? Yes, absolutely. I think it's, again, I'm looking at the razor's edge, but we all live with that. And we'll be the best version of ourselves when we can 
find those and, and optimize them. So the first leg of the inner armor tripod is precision, but the second leg is power. How can improving our breathing, our coherence, our heart rate variability, et cetera, improve the health and quality of our life? Well, I learned that being a, a stomach breather instead of a, a ribs breather <laughs> was just a foundational. I mean, that was probably my first meeting with Dr. Royer was that, was to just say, hey, watch yourself breathe, pay attention to how your lungs expand when really it should be your diaphragm pushing such that your stomach goes out. And that's the way we were designed to breathe. But life comes at us. And as we get older, we get away from that. And we start to breathe with our ribs, which is not how we were designed to operate. And, and your nervous system is affected by that. And, and really the way you physiologically respond to life. And so at a foundational level, being a stomach breather, as I would call it, can make a major difference on many downstream effect. So I look at my, my three-year-old son, Turner, and I watch him breathe and it's all stomach naturally. And I'll yeah. be interested to see when he's 10, 11, 12, 15, if that changes. But I'll be able to point to the fact that when he was three, he was a stomach breather. So if it changes, it's not because of the, the nature, it's because of the nurture and the way life affects you. So it's, it's, a, it's a big deal. And so for me, it's about kind of undoing the negative and getting back to the way you're naturally wired. And so I do the stomach breathing in the locker room right before the game. I do it when the defense is on the field and I'm sitting on the bench. I do it on the bus on the way to games, but I also do it in the car driving around. I've got Dr. Royer's giving me tools to be able to kind of track my breathing through cell phone apps and other things. And so I just kind of keep it with me in, in, in a bag or in the car and just have the ability at any time throughout the day to kind of pause and take a three minute break to just kind of reset with my breathing. And I think there are benefits in daily life to that, but I also think there are benefits to the long haul. And while I'm mm. trying to be the best quarterback I can be, I also want to win the long game. And, yep. and that's a big part of all that I do with Dr. Royer is to look back when I'm 50, 60, 70 years old and just be in a place that other people my age who have been through my experiences are not in just simply because of the habits I was able to do on a daily basis and put in year after year. Kirk, I think while everybody doesn't play football, everybody's familiar with stress <laughs> and you're familiar with that firsthand uh, from a lot of different things that happen in the game of football. How would you say the dance in a sense of stress and breathing, like if we look at that over the last 12 years, right? And we think about how much breathing you've done and different moments of stress at a macro level, but also at a micro level. How do you see those two things kind of working with each other? Well, the more, the more stress you're under, the greater the need to breathe properly. Mm. And so the more you feel yourself in that place of stress, the more you need to be aware of taking a break to breathe or saying, how am I breathing? And I think you'll find that when the breathing improves, the stress improves such that you are a better able to function in whatever stressful environment you're in. And so certainly for me, that's, that's the football games. And so I really try to be intentional about my breathing around those moments. But many things I do in training, it's always oh, three days a week or once a month or whatever, where you're not, it's not a all the time, every time thing. It's a part of your life. 
Breathing is an exercise that when I've asked, how often should I be doing this? It's it's really a, you can't do it enough. Like there is no <laughs> level of, well, if you could just correctly breathe this often, that'd be great. It's like, no, we're always going to want you to correctly breathe more than what you currently do. So anytime you can apply it, there are benefits. And if it's three three times a day, great, start with that. But you want to get to a place where it's all the time. And that's when you really unlock the benefits. So the three legs of the Inner Armor tripod, as we said, are precision and power. And that brings us to focus. What have you learned about managing that stress and achieving focus? How can ordinary people apply that to their lives? Well, there's no doubt I agree with what you just said that everybody has stress and problems are relative. And so for me, certainly is a football game stressful? Absolutely. But believe me, my, my kids can bring a lot of stress to my life too. So I get, I get the fact that a parent could be experiencing it just as much as a pro quarterback. So I, I think that, that many times when your body is in that fight or flight mode and you're under stress, uh, you're physiologically not going to be able to perform at your best. It, it goes into survival mode. It doesn't go into thrive mode. And I, I'm in a place where I, I can't afford to be in survival. I'll be in thrive mode. And so uh, I'm trying to teach my body to get to thrive mode, even in some very stressful situations where without proactive work, it's going to just go into survival mode. And, uh, and so that's really been at the foundation of a lot of the work that Doc and I have done is trying to get my body physiologically to thrive in moments where it really just wants to survive. And if I had been just surviving, I, I never would have made it. <laughs> yeah. But but the emphasis on trying to get everything to thrive is what enables you to be at your best in competition and in stress. And and that's really at the root of a lot of the work we've done. And and Kirk is over the years we've done a lot of work besides football, trying to just speak together to other groups with different concerns like attention or anxiety or learning or those kind of things. And he's he's really been a supporter for for this goes beyond just football. And and would you say when you're looking at those brainwaves, Kirk, that that would apply to to really everybody outside of not just you as a quarterback? Exactly. I think it, it arguably applies far more importantly to that third grade student who, mm. if we don't get on top of this now, he's going to be labeled with things that just aren't fair to him. It's not his fault that. And next thing you're on bed and you're told that you're not good at this or that. And now your self-esteem is affected. And there's a an, an ongoing impact for the rest of your life. It just doesn't have to be the case. And so I was able to discover this, some of this stuff at 23, 24 years old. In my opinion, that's still 15 years too late. Yeah. And so I think it's so important that that we get to the root of these things at the beginning as early as we can. And don't allow it to grow snowball into bigger issues. And that's the other piece that I'll always say about any health and wellness benefits that I've received. Many times you take them for granted because being healthy and being in a good place and moving forward, you just shrug your shoulders and say, great. But you don't know what it could have been. You don't know how bad it could have gotten. You don't know the things that you cut off at the pass. And if you hadn't have proactively been doing something where it could have gone in a negative way. And so I look back now and I think all the things that I avoided that I don't even know about, I'm not even aware of, simply because we were able to catch it before it ever became a real problem. Mm, definitely. Kirk, 
What advice would you give not only for young kids so that they can grow up and maximize their potential, be the best versions of themselves, find success, but also to their parents and to their teachers and their coaches and the people around them? Well, I just learned too much about my own health and wellness and my own journey to ever settle for, well, you're just, that's just not good enough. You're just not going to be good enough or you weren't Mm. cut out for this. That that just, I've learned too much to settle for that as, as an answer. Mm. Uh, I remember Dr. Roy was with me. We went and saw a physical therapist back in 2013 who looked at at my foot and ankle mobility and saw that Mm. they were very limited. And he said, if I had seen these feet and ankles on somebody and didn't know what you did for a living, I would have thought it's not possible for you to be a professional quarterback with how limited your mobility is in your feet and ankles. But he said, but we can work on this and we can get it better. It may not ever become what, you know, would be the ideal, but, but we can improve it. And so for me, the key was, first of all, learning that my foot and ankle mobility was a hindrance. And then secondly, how to improve it. And once I was able to do that, I was able to benefit as an athlete and, and have a better chance of staying healthy. And to this day, still benefit from that visit and, and what came of that visit. And so. I just think it's so important to be persistent and be resilient and always be looking for answers and for solutions and to not give up or be a victim or say, well, it just shrug your shoulders. It just it didn't work out for me. I think it's so important if we want to go where we want to go in life is to keep pushing and to be resilient. And that's where it helps to have people in the fight with you, like mm-hmm. a Dr. Royer who's giving you that armor that you need to stay in the fight and keep going. And so whether it's more psychology-based conversations that we've had through the years or more physiology-based exercises and conversations we've had through the years, whatever it may be, he's equipping me with the armor that I need to stay in this fight, both on the football field and in life. That, let's be honest, it's not an easy fight. I mean, life comes at us all hard. And if you're not equipped with the armor you need, you're eventually going to throw your hands up and say, I can't do this. And so why not make the effort to to get the armor that'll help you excel at all you want to do? This has been the Inner Armor Podcast. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts. Would you please follow or subscribe and make sure to leave us a review or comment. You can learn more about Inner Armor, Dr. Royer, and how to perform at your potential by going to forgeinnerarmor.com.